0: Thanks. My name's Tim. I'm now Very glad to be here. Uh, for those on the recording, you, you, you didn't hear the intro. I was in, uh, I attended and 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 participated in, in that Facebook group, Big Book Compass, for a while until they caught me at it. <laughs> uh, it's a very contentious place sometimes. And yeah, uh, interesting, interesting. So, anyway, um, I think my One of my biggest faults, there's a lot of competition for what my biggest faults are. um, But one of them is overcomplicating the heck out of the program. And I think I spent a lot of my recovery making it more and more and more complicated. And now I'm trying to undo the damage. Um, Today, things look really, really simple to me. Uh, Maybe I'm missing something, but they look really, really simple. Uh, But let's go right back to the beginning. Um, My drinking started in the late 1980s. I was living in Germany. uh, And I started experiencing consequences straight away. It was about a year and a half into my drinking. At this point, I'm back in the UK, 1990, uh, where I was listening to a French song from the 1950s about someone being taken away by the men in the white coats. And I thought, I'm next. (laughs) Uh, It took a year and a half of drinking very large quantities. I'm small now, but I was very slight. In 1990, uh, I was drinking huge quantities. I was too ill to function, paranoid, antisocial. I couldn't even have a nice time when everyone else was having a nice time. Uh, When I set out to have a nice time, I just, it, it, it was Russian roulette what direction my evening would take. So, very sensibly, I knew moderation was out of question. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll stop drinking. That'll solve the problem. And I stopped drinking. And physically, I could stop. Um, I had a change in the environment. And I was in, I was in a, a, one, of, one of the Nordic countries for three months and Uh, I drank a couple of times, but basically I managed to stay away from it. But something had broken inside me because of that year and a half of alcoholic drinking. And I couldn't go back to the normal world again. It would not have me. There was a desperate sense that I was on the wrong planet, that I was in the wrong place. There was an itch I couldn't scratch and the relief when I started drinking the next three years demonstrate my step one to me. I, I was talking to someone yesterday who uh, was trying to help a, a kid, I say kid 24, in a treatment center. And the kid was saying to this chap, he was having trouble identifying because he had all sorts of other problems, um, uh, Asperger's and so on. I, I have Asperger's, uh, form of autism. And when I when I got to AA, when I got to AA, I was had a very bad case of special and different. Uh, I remember saying to Maureen, a Wimbledon housewife, I said, "I won't be able to do a step four, Maureen. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to keep you happy with it, but I can't do it." She said, "Why not?" I said, "Trouble is, I can communicate effectively only." through the medium of poetry. And she said a very, very bad word, which I'm not going to repeat because this is recorded and it's going to go out there into the world. Um, she said, you're a garden variety. She said, common of garden. I think the American expression is a garden variety alcoholic. Um, I identified with all sorts of weird and wonderful things in AA. I remember a meeting once where someone said, that they had thrown themselves in front of a moving car when they were drinking. And I thought, I did that. And I shared that I'd done that. And three other people shared that they'd done that. So no longer special and different. That's great. But I was looking for identification with the wrong thing. And I was talking to this bloke who worked in the treatment center. And I said, So he doesn't identify with anyone with his Asperger's, but the Asperger's is not the problem. The alcoholism is the problem. And I said, Did he drink? He said, yes. Did he drink too much? Yes, (laughs) we're doing really well so far. The hole in my face is very much like the hole in everyone else's face. Drinking is drinking, large quantities are large quantities. If you drink a lot, bad stuff's gonna happen. If normal people drink a lot, bad stuff is gonna happen. Some people say, oh, I know I've got the physical allergy it talks about in the big book, because when I drank, I threw up. And I'm like, pumpkin, that might be because you had a whole bottle of vodka. That's not that's not the allergic reaction they're talking about. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So uh, drinking, the experience of drinking, drinking large quantities, having bad stuff go down is that's what happens to just human beings who drink. The difference, um, where, this is where the identification becomes important. I wrap myself up in knots for years, for years, about uh, the so-called mental obsession. And I'll come to that in detail in a minute. Uh, I started to worry very much. I never really tried, not sincerely tried to stop drinking on my own. The first time I sincerely tried to stop drinking forever and really meant it, really thought about it. I came to AA. So how do I know I couldn't have done it on my own? It's completely irrelevant. The quick way through this is very simple for me. This is my step one today. I look at when problems, real problems started to happen because of my drinking. And we're looking January, 1989. Uh, When was my last drink? 24th of July, 1993. So that's four and a half years. What we're looking at is the simple fact that over those four and a half years, I did not moderate and I did not stop altogether. Bad experiences don't cause me to do either of those things. What I was thinking, what was going through my mind, whether I tried, how hard I tried, how sincere it was, what other measures I use, completely irrelevant. I burnt myself very badly uh, with a hot water bottle when I was seven. If someone hadn't intervened, I would have—I'd I'd have been permanently scarred by it. But someone intervened; they knew what to do, and I was fine. I have been careful with hot water bottles since then, and I won't go near one. I have the mechanism which I am able to have a bad experience and learn from it. There's someone at a group somewhere in the Western Hemisphere. I, I'm, how's that for anonymous? I'm not going to go into any further detail, but they came up to me once and gave me a dressing down after a meeting. I've successfully avoided this person and interacting with them ever since. I'm perfectly capable of having a horrible experience of someone or something or a situation or a substance. And I'll tell you a funny thing. I, uh, around January 1991, I snorted something. I didn't ask what it was. And the What it did to me, it did a real number of. And you know what? I never snorted anything again. How different to my response to alcohol and a bunch of other things, behaviours, whatever. (laughs) The fact is that it doesn't matter how bad it gets with alcohol. A drink will always seem like a good idea or at times that's the key point at times seem like a good idea so when it talks about the mental obsession in the big book our difficulty I think lies in the gap between what they wanted the word to mean and what the word means in the language today I've got an American friend who is obsessed with the British royal family there are union jacks everywhere he's is what his dog is named after a member of the British royal family, uh, like the full name. Um, there's memorabilia, there's regalia that he knows everything about. them. That's what obsession looks like in the 21st century. When you say you're obsessed with something, what you mean is you're preoccupied with it. You're thinking about it all the time. It's not what they mean in the big book. What's fascinating, when you look at Jim's story, page 35. Fred's story, page 39. The thoughts of a drink came out of the blue. They were not fussing over whether they were going to drink. They weren't nagging themselves with a drink. Perfectly normal day. Perfectly normal day. Perfectly normal day. Boom. I want a drink. And as soon as the thought comes in, it crowds out all other thoughts and it takes the steering wheel of the bus. And now we're all off to have a drink. So it's a thought which periodically arises and drowns out all others. And I hear a chilling thing in meetings sometimes. I hear people say, you know, well, you know, I'm arguing with everyone at work. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm this. I'm that. But I don't feel like drinking because I know where it would take me. And I'm all good luck with that. That's great that today you don't want to drink. It's great that today you know where it's going to take you. I've been in AA meetings because I went to AA for six months before I had my last little drink, a little drink which resulted in me being run over, arrested, blah, blah, blah. In that meeting, saying I'm an alcoholic, I'm really glad to be sober, everything's going great, loving the program, glad to be sober, glad to be here. Walk out, go straight to the pub, get drunk. So the fact that at any moment in time, I don't want to drink because I know where it's going to take me is no guarantee or assurance that that state is going to remain in perpetuity. As someone said in the chat, at certain times, that's the tricky thing. If it was if it was at every moment of every day, I'd wanted a drink. I'd know what I was dealing with. It's the randomness and unpredictability and uncertainty of it. I can't tell whether I'm going to drink by asking myself, do I feel like a drink now? Do I think I'm going to have a drink? Those are irrelevant factors in whether or not I'm going to have a drink. I'll explain. If you want to do a self-diagnosis of whether you think you're actually going to have a drink, I've got a little test for you later on with seven questions, but I'll come back to that. So mental obsession is a persistently recurring thought which overrides all others. And the persistently recurring thought is a drink is a valid option. Not even a good idea, a valid option. Uh, Then something called the the physical craving kicks in, uh, which simply means when I drink, I overshoot. And it's a craving because I overshoot. But it's very different, again, there's a distinction between what it means in the book, which is something which is triggered by the first drink and what it means in the language generally. My friend James gives the best example of this, of how different it is. He says, when he goes to the cinema, all day in advance, he's looking forward to it, thinking, I'm gonna get a box of Maltesers. If you're American, that's all Swedish. That's a little box of round chocolates. nothing to do with the island of Malta, but Maltesers. Maybe it has malt in it, I don't know. Anyway, he's looking forward to the box of Maltesers all day. He's craving the box of Maltesers all day. He buys his box of Maltesers. He goes and sits down in the dark in the cinema and the Maltesers are all eaten by the time the trailers are over that he does not get up and buy another box or the The physical craving, the physical craving is something which is set off by having a drink. Um, now, how do we know it's a physical craving? Well, we know it's a craving because I keep drinking another one, another one, another one, another one. Why do we call it physical craving? Well, I'll tell you why. I subscribe to this theory it talks about in the doctor's opinion if i'm not doing it because i'm simply compelled to by my physiology why would i be doing it is it because i enjoy the effect well no because often i did not enjoy the effect maybe the first one i enjoyed maybe the second one but i don't know about you When you've had an absolute skinful, and you have one more shot, you're not getting an extra effect out of that shot. Makes no sense, it's not rational. Uh, I continued to drink, knowing that my mind was taking a darker and darker turn, and I tended to seek out trouble. I would rove around the streets drunk, looking for trouble. And I knew that if I carried on drinking, I would be, I would, it would happen again. I'd get into a fight, I'd get into a scuffle, I'd have to scarper. So I'm not having the 14th drink or the 27th drink because I'm thinking it through and I've weighed it up. It's in my best interest, so I'm going to do it. Why am I having the 14th, the 27th? It's also not because I'm thick, because I'm not thick. And it's also not because I was psychotic, because I wasn't psychotic. If I'm not powerless, what is it? If it's not this automated process over which I have no mental control, what is it? You know, basically thick, mad, unhappy, or powerless. Pick one. None of those others made sense to me because I drank like that even when I was happy. I can't even blame my emotions. I can't. There is nothing to pin it on. And the last option left is I do it because that's how I drink. No explanation necessary. And now you put those two together. There's a bit of my mind which one day is going to wake up and say, let's have a drink. When that thought comes into my mind, if I'm unlucky, it's gonna, it's gonna have a VIP ticket straight past the bouncer into the VIP room, and it's gonna be in charge, and we're off. And once I'm off, I'm really off. And the physical craving, this, this continued drinking after the first drink, it's not just on any individual occasion. Uh, I uh, relapsed or resumed drinking again after a period of sobriety in uh, September 1991 and I didn't seriously try to stop again till uh, January 1993 so if I drank again I don't know if I would ever come back to AA when you swim out to sea and you're a weak swimmer it is if you land back up on the shore it's because the tide brought you in you didn't you can't get back um Plus, because of the stuff I do when I'm drunk, I don't know how long I'd last out there, frankly. So there's no such thing as a safe slip, which means this is an urgent thing. Sometimes people say it's not a race. Yes, it is. It's a race to get in the hands of a power greater than yourself before that little devilish thought pops out of the woodwork and grabs the steering wheel. So, yes, it's a race. So there's an urgency to that. I I recognized for three years I needed to get sober, but it wasn't until the 24th of July I realized I needed to get sober now, today. No questions, just let's do it. Now that diagnoses me as an alcoholic if despite consequences I drink and then despite consequences I overshoot I am an alcoholic. Those are the two features. What does that mean? The pr- that's the diagnosis, the prognosis: fatal, progressive, incurable. It'll kill me. Maybe today, maybe later. But it's gonna it's gonna take twenty years, twenty five years off my life, according to a doctor friend of mine who uh, is the chief physician of a very large treatment uh, facility for mental health and drug and alcohol addiction in Germany. 20 to 25 years on average, but that's the average. Fatal, it's progressive. Uh, I've known people that go in and out of AA and there'll be a trip out of AA that they can't come back from. They could come back from the previous ones, but they can't come back from this one. There are lines that are crossed and you don't know you crossed a line until you crossed it. So you've got to treat it as though the line, the point of no return is the next drink. Which is why in old fashioned, non big book AA, they say get to bed without a drink tonight. And I don't think that's bad advice. It mustn't be the only advice, but it's not bad advice either, in my view. Uh, It's also incurable. Uh, I asked myself a question in uh, when I was around nine and a half, ten 10 years sober, I uh, skipped a lot of AA for about a year and a half. Uh, I barely did any. I was consumed with other things. I didn't drink. I didn't take drugs. I was perilously close on a couple of occasions, but I come back to AA. Um, and the key to this, see, I thought maybe, maybe, I drank the way I drank because I was young, I was messed up, blah, you know, you know the script. Um, The doctor's opinion snuffed that idea out. All sorts of other things in the big book. The man of 30 who resumes drinking after a 25 year period of abstinence. It's an apocryphal story apparently based on something in one of the predecessor books to the big book. But that's irrelevant. The point is one sees that in AA the whole time. The fact that someone has been sober for 10, 20, 30 years, my friend or an acquaintance of mine started drinking on his 60th birthday. He celebrated his 60th birthday. He was around 30 years sober with a glass of champagne. Why wouldn't you? You're 60. You've made it this far and he was begging in doorways within six months. So the evidence appears to be, once you've had this, you got it forever. It can be arrested, but it can't be eradicated. And here's the interesting thing as well. Sometimes people say, well, maybe I could drink again, but the the problem Let's say only one in a hundred alcoholics who resume drinking after 20 30 years actually drink alcoholically. Would that be a risk that you could seriously take, given that the risk would be fatal? It, that the analogy someone gave me once if there was an unexploded bomb in your house and someone said there's only a one in a hundred chance that it's going to go off, would you continue to live that? I wouldn't. So there's always a suspicion around why people are even looking at that question at 10, 20, 30 years sober. Um, Someone said to a friend of mine once, you're getting mighty thirsty there, little Missy. (laughs) And at nine and a half years, I was getting mighty thirsty. That was what was going on. And it manifested as abstract questions trying to wheedle out of it. But back to the topic, fatal, progressive, incurable. Um, unmanageability, Let's. I'm gonna to touch upon this. This is a contentious topic and people have different views and that's fine. Um, I'm gonna try and put this simply and briefly. The word unmanageability doesn't appear in the big book until it's suddenly presented in step one on page 59 and then it doesn't mention it again. And very often meetings I used to go to, uh, they would say that basically unmanageability is like completely setting aside alcohol. um, You're, you know, are you neurotic? Are you incompetent? Do you lack life skills? Are you disorganized? Are you a jerk? All of those things. Well, if that's the case, your life is unmanageable. What's so interesting though, when they choose a poster boy for alcoholism on pages 39 to 43, who do they choose? Fred. Is he a typical AA newcomer? I don't think so. He's doing really well. He's got an amazing job. He's got children, college age. Everyone loves him. He's delightful. He's charming. He's suave. He's successful. And he has a great day. And yet he drinks. Roland Hazard, page uh, 27. Uh, He's seen literally the best psychoanalyst in the world, you're Well, arguably, certainly top three. His physical condition and mental condition were great. If to admit that I'm unmanageable means to admit that I'm neurotically incompetent and disorganized, and everything is going to hell in a hand part because of that, then Fred couldn't take step one, Roland Hazard couldn't take step one because that was not the condition they were in. And the penny dropped the reason they don't go into unmanageability, maybe it's because it was so self-evident to them, it didn't occur to them, anyone would need it explaining. They didn't reckon with alcoholics, though, did they? There was very elaborate Da Vinci Code-like explanations for unmanageability in rooms sometimes. But I heard a public information video a while ago, AA1, official Great Britain AA1. Uh, which had one of those, it was very 1950s. It wasn't made in the 1950s, but it was just like a 1950s public information video. And there was a voiceover with a very posh man uh, and an actor playing someone in prison who was an alcoholic. Um, um, And the voiceover said something like this. This is Brian. Brian is alcoholic. He's lost control of his drinking and thus, his life. I thought, oh, there we go. There we have it. If I can't choose whether or not I drink, and when I drink, I can't choose how much I drink. And when I get drunk, I can't choose what I'm doing because I'm drunk. I'm not in charge of my life. I'm not managing my life. Alcoholism is. Being an alcoholic is like being a doctor on call. You look like you're in charge of your evening, until you get texted by the hospital. I saw it happen the other day with someone in a restaurant, surgeon, and she got a text from the hospital. I heard her saying to a friend, I'm so sorry. I'd love to stay, but I have to go. There's an operation I need to participate in. Um, I look like I'm in charge of my life until alcoholism says, nope, 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 we're off to the pub. We're off to the off license. We're off to the this, we're off to the that. It's in charge but you don't realize it's in charge because it takes long naps. But when it wakes up, boy, does it wake up. And then once it wakes up, it's in charge. Alcoholism is a lot like dancing with a gorilla. You're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing. So our manageability. That all that stuff, by the way, I was neurotic, incompetent and disorganized. And those were really super reasons why step three was a very, very good idea that God be in charge of my life, not me. But. If they weren't there, I would still need to have God in charge of my life. I'll tell you why. If I don't know when the thought of a drink is going to occur to me, if I don't know when it's going to happen, I need protection. 24 hours a day if you don't know when the fire is going to start you need the fire alarm 24 hours a day if you don't know when the but when the 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 thief is going to try and steal your car your car needs to be locked 24 hours a day so i need a defense 24 hours a day and the defense cannot come from you see alcoholism pulls rank on me Therefore, I need something to pull rank on alcoholism. And this, by its very nature, is a higher power. It is higher. It is a power because it stops me from drinking. And it is higher because it is higher than alcohol, alcoholism, and the alcoholism is higher than me. If I'm in the habit of doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, when I want to drink, I will drink. So I've got to be in the habit. I've got to be militarily trained to not do what I want to do. I've got to have a program. And they didn't talk a lot about God in my first year. It's it's London. No one believes in God in London. A few people do now, <laughs> but. It's not, a, it's not America, it's a very different place. Most, it, most people are atheist and haughty about it and certain. Even those who believe, I mean, the Church of England isn't, even the Church of England isn't very gaudy. Uh, there was a sketch in the 1980s where there was an interview with the Church of England uh, vicar, and this was a comedy sketch, and someone asked the Church of England Bicca or Bishop about God. And he says, well, you know, in the Church of England, God is mentioned. And that's about as far as it goes. It's very different than the you know, televangelists or other. Uh, it's not like Joyce Meyer. Let's put it like that. So anyway, my first year, my first year in AA London was not about turning my will and life over to a power greater than myself in the form of some deity it was do as you're told uh i think my sponsor said if you uh if you drink again you're going to be going to meetings in a wheelchair i said why he said because i'll break both your legs uh, it was no good telling me oh we love you we're going to love you till you can learn to love yourself i'm very much at the chuck c school i wouldn't have taken myself with a large dowry. So if you loved me, I thought you were a fool, a first class, 19-carat gold fool. But if you could show you cared in that way, somehow that got through to me. It was a very clever way of getting through to me. But the point is, what I was taught was uh, just have a daily program. You go to your meeting every day. You do service at the meeting. You go for fellowship after the meeting. Here are the things you do in the morning. Here are the things you do in the evening. And yes, you pray to God, blah, blah, blah. But I could not see God. I could not feel God because I hadn't yet had a spiritual awakening. Some people get flashes. I got the occasional flash, but I needed something all day long. And the thing that I had all day long was the daily plan of action. They said, life is what you do in between meetings. All I had to do was get to the next meeting and then follow the instructions I had a sponsor. I worked the Steps very quickly. I made a whole bunch of amends in the first year with the ones I couldn't find. It was a shoddy eight and nine. I have to say, looking back, I wouldn't give tuppence for how I did it, but it was sincere. Uh, I wrote letters to the people I couldn't find, put the name on an envelope, put a stamp on the envelope, no address, posted it. Thought, I don't know where it's going to go, but that's the closest I can get. And I stayed sober. Now, um, long story short, let's let's go forward to I was about 15 years sober and things weren't terrible by any means. Think, lots of things were wonderful. I was in a very good relationship. I was in a good job. I enjoyed that. I was happy in the relationship. I was happy in the job. But there were areas of my life there. Were, there was acting out, which was unseemly. I'm not going to go into detail. You can let your imagination run riot. We've all got a list. Uh, There was acting out in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, I had an unresolved relationship with my mother. So pretty major. Uh, There were other things, there were other behaviours which I was seriously uncomfortable with but could do nothing about. And the one thing I, I had a sponsor, but he was, you know, the kindly old gentleman type of sponsor. Uh, there was no big book stuff going on in London AA that was discernible. I discovered later there are a couple of other groups here and there, but basically the kind of big book AA as we now understand it did not exist. But I found some tapes. Long story short, listened to the tapes, wrote down what they said, did exactly what they said, went through the big book from soup to nuts, doing exactly following the instructions exactly like I was too stupid to interpret them, and. I had what Chris R refers to as a barnstorming spiritual experience. And the spiritual experience arrived the moment I completed the last amend, went for a run, said to my higher power, is there anyone else I owe amends to who I've interacted badly with, who any small theft, any small slight, any gossiping, any backbiting, any bitching, any meanness, any nastiness, anything stolen, anything damaged, anything broken, anything borrowed or not returned, any nuisance? Is there anything? And nothing came because I'd done in the course of six weeks, I'd gone through all the steps. I took myself through. I did a step five with a couple of old timers. I ran through some, some tricky step eights with a couple of old timers. But here's the thing. The book was meant to be a, here's the book, do what it says. We can give you some guidance along the way. And it worked. It worked. (laughs) There wasn't anyone else obstructing it. That was the curious thing. I think if someone had tried to take me through it, I would have balked all the way and we'd we'd still be there now. But it was between me and a higher power. And the only way I could test whether the promises in the big book were true was to do exactly what it said and then see if I got the results. And I'll tell you an interesting thing. The spiritual experience I had, 16 years sober, I'm 29 years sober now, was nothing on what I've continued to experience since then. Um, One little detail about how I operate my program now. Um, I have tried various things. I've tried doing the steps once a year. I've tried waiting till things are really bad before redoing the steps. I've I've tried all sorts of things. What what I've landed on after a lot of trial and experimentation, and it's currently working for me and has been working for me for some time very well, is to go through the first nine steps once a quarter. It takes a few hours because I did one only three months ago. There's a limit to how much can build up in three months. If you leave it three years, a lot can build up. Um, It takes a few hours to look at, really look at step one, look at step two. And I don't belabor it. It's a bit, it's a, I treat it as a very business-like transaction. And I share my step five with several people. I do a step eight and nine. uh, Because I clear my mess up as I go along. It's uh, certainly the last few. There haven't been any formal amends that have had to be made because I hate there being tension between me and anyone else. I I cannot stand unfinished business. I'm very intolerant of unfinished business in myself. But I have 16 names with adjusted behaviors that need to be implemented. Now, the funny thing is none of the information in that list, that step eight and nine list is news. Not one word in terms of the fault of mine, and the corrective measure. But there is something about formally going through those first nine steps, in particular, the, the sharing the step five, my whole self, I share my whole self in the round with someone else, releases power in a way that nothing else does. This idea of multiple step fives, uh, I got from, well, ultimately, you know, people people listen to the tapes, they generally know, but where it seems to have come from is uh, Paul, Paul M from Riverside, Illinois, who died with, I think, 62 years of sobriety. And he chanced upon, funnily enough, at 16 years sober as well, this formula of redoing the steps on a regular basis and doing multiple step fights, sharing your whole self with a bunch of people. And... That there's something about doing a multiple step five where by the time you've got to the third person or the fourth person, you're bored and all of the sting has gone out of it. And it's just, it's just dead, it's just dead words now. And it's amazing. That, and you realize that you are now no longer in the position of the person that wrote that. Your relationship to it has, my relationship to it changes with each one that I read. I read it to other people until I'm bored and done. Also, uh, you know, the shell game, the, 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 uh, the street tricksters play with the three cups and they get you to guess is the P or the ball or the whatever, which cup is it under. Whichever cup you guess, they lift it up and they go to that. There's no P under it and you lose. The ego, in my view, my e- what is my ego? Let's define it. My ego is the belief that I'm this separate being running around the world in a human body, subject only to human forces, doomed to die with a particular ethnicity, social background, identity, sexual orientation, gender, all of those things. That's my ego. My ego's story is that I don't want to be one with everyone. I do not want to be part of the universe. I want to be special. I don't want to merge into the choir and just be one voice amongst many. I don't want to be a dot of light in a field of light. I want to be the soloist. I wanna be in the spotlight whilst everyone else is in the dark. And for technical reasons I won't go into, this is associated with a ton of guilt. Um, Competition with other people, in my experience, and because that's what the ego is about. It's grasping for something, where I win, someone else has to lose. If everyone gets the prize, the prize is not worth anything. The prize is only worth something if I'm the one that gets it and you're the one that doesn't. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his essay, The Great Sin of Pride, where he talks about, it's a little bit old-fashioned language, but he says, the reason you want the girl is not because you want the girl, it's because you want to get the girl so the other bloke doesn't get the girl. This is ego. And what the ego loves to do is to keep me trapped in that idea. What it's terrified that I'm going to do is to reunite with the high power, realize the whole charade is over and I don't need to run after anything in the world. There is nothing left to fix. And the ego's chief mechanism is guilt to keep me here because if I'm guilty, I'm too scared to go back to God. And this is where the step five, my experience, and the step nine are so important. And why? doing steps 10 11 and 12 and trying to cover all of the defects and the wrongs by drip feeding them to a sponsor or to someone else is a fundamentally different experience than doing a survey and a 360 degree survey in the round because i i did a step 5 with with tom who's my my um i'm an aa sponsor i don't i only have one sponsor But I have an Al-Anon go-to person and lots of the stuff. I've been in Al-Anon on and off since 1995. I have an Al-Anon go-to person from Tom who's been sober in AA since 76 and in Al-Anon since I think 78. And lots of the stuff was very Al-Anon-y. It was fix, change, control, regulate, nag, intrude into other people's lives. It was me as the spider with... Everyone trapped in my work. That was the picture of the latest step five. Fixing everything and bre- I, I fix things. So I, when things are broken, I fix them, I fix them, I fix them and I fix them until they're really broken. That's my aluminism. I get in there and make it worse. Um, you know, the, the billiard ball, the pool balls are flying around the pool table Will I wait for the balls to stop? No, I throw myself onto the table. People do not belong on a pool table. You gotta wait till the, till the balls stop moving before you can make your next move. But back to the point, the point is I shared the exact nature of my wrongs with him, the exact nature of the wrongs of my current manifestation in the world. And I got to it, he said, is there anything else? And I said, no. And it was very clear. This was just over the phone. He's in Oakland or something. I wasn't even face to face. But there's something you hear in a voice. I thought, I'm fine. I'm loved. I'm good. In all senses. And the ego has no further cards to play. i proved to my ego that It has been lying to me the whole time. Even though I've been full of error, I haven't been full of sin. I'm not bad. I've been mistaken. And that's why step five is radically different than drip feeding individual admissions in step 10. Because when I'm admitting one thing to you behind my back, it's all of the other past and future things. I'm just giving you a snapshot, just one slice. And my ego is saying at the same time, yeah, but what about everything else? If I say everything in one go, the ego has nothing left to hold on to. And I can go back to God without fear because the guilt is gone. Same with steps eight and nine. As soon as I, uh, Don P talks about getting free in step eight, not in step nine, and I understand that. It's when I make the decision, I will do anything to set these things right. Um, change, um, in my case, in my behavior, in my personality, in my character, in my beliefs, my attitudes, my values, has been very, very slow, Tom said to me a couple of days ago. Um. Most people find that they have to place the slow change in their behavior in the hands of a power greater than themselves. But it's that commitment in step eight. When I looked at that list, I looked at the misbehavior and it's relatively low level stuff, but it's there and it hurts and it's not good. And I looked at what the corrective measures are how I'm going to treat these people instead. And they're important people. All people are important. These are people who are very important to me. The willingness to say the game is up. I'm willing to entrust the rest of this process to a power greater than myself. Means I have nothing left to hide. And again, the ego has nothing on me. I wanna say one thing um, about upset. Um, On page 87 of the big book, it talks very clearly about when I'm going through the day, how I should respond to two situations when agitated or doubtful And it it struck me for a long time these were odd words to choose because they're not the most obvious states to find oneself in. agitated it's not a common word. Doubtful is not a common word. But it struck me after a while that they cover, All forms of human disturbance in other words i'm either not at peace because there's something out there or inside but i'm not at peace or i've got a decision to make and i don't know what to do those are either something has bothered me it has bothered me or i don't know what to do So it's really a troubleshooter for any situation a human being can find themselves in. It's very interesting. Then it gives me a very straightforward answer, which is to ask for the right thought or action. To remind myself I'm no longer running the show and to humbly say to to myself, say to God many times each day, uh, I will be done. But what I want to zone in on is the, Upset the agitation. Whenever I'm upset, I've fallen back into the illusion that my emotions are caused by something outside of myself. Um, even physical illness. Um, wars, economic situations, the losses of jobs, grief, the belief that my emotions stem from something outside of myself is the upside down thinking of the ego. Astrid, my good friend Astrid, is an unconventional (laughs) AA member, good for the unconventional AA members, she said The calls are coming from within the house. It's never really caused by something outside. There's a difference between what causes a phenomenon and what occasions it. If something trips a tripwire, the event occasions uh, the tripping of the tripwire. But why was the tripwire there in the first place? And my ego, the way it tries to get rid of my guilt is to make you guilty instead. So the bony finger of retribution coming down from the heavens is going to hit you, not me. This is why resentment, people will say, listen to how people speak, because how people speak tells you a lot more than what they're saying. Um, One of the most common phrases that sponsees use I have used with me is, I am full of resentment. It's like they're a milk jug saying, I'm a milk jug. I'm full of milk. Now the milk jug doesn't fill itself with milk. Someone has poured the milk into the milk jug. And someone who says I'm full of resentment believes that the resentment has somehow been poured into them by external forces. What is the truth? The truth is, I have bought into the lies of the ego, I have deliberately and consciously fostered resentful thoughts against other people and that has produced these feelings and now I'm complaining about the feelings which stem from the beliefs, the attitudes, the values and the thoughts that I've been engaging in. You have a very different conversation about resentment when you start it that way, when you take responsibility for it. It Says on page 66 of the big book about resentment, says to the extent that we permit these. Oh, so I'm causing my resentment. That's interesting. If it keeps happening, it's because it feels good. So whenever I'm complaining about resentment, I'm complaining about the calm down from a drug. What is the drug? The drug is the thrill of being right so that you are wrong. Sometimes I... I don't know if you've experienced this, where you get into a state of mind where you don't know what you're angry about, but you know you're angry, and then you look for something. And then you look around You're in the street, and she shouldn't be wearing that skirt, it's doing her no favours at all. Now, where did that come from? It's because you've already de- you've, the decision has already been made to be upset. And then you're looking for something. Now, that occasionally happens consciously i believe that that's where all of my resentment comes from there's a fundamental i've gone back into an ego state there's a fundamental guilt there and i want to get rid of it by finding something wrong with you all i'm aware of is i'm just going through my day just minding my own business doing god's will and then suddenly the jerk appears and it's untrue but I can see the same person who does the same thing on another day and I'm absolutely fine. The calls are coming from within the house. And what this is all about is ego. And on top of page 66, it says the more we fought to try and have our own way, the worse matters got. If I have my own way, If I want to, if I have a way that I want the world to comply with, I'm going to be resentful. I'm going to be frightened because no plan can be guaranteed to succeed. And not only that, you get your own way. How many people thought when they graduate high school, then life will really begin? And then six weeks later, you have the next hurdle and the next hurdle and the next hurdle. There is no escape from this. There is no escape from the world within the world. My whole mistake in I think in the first 25 years, I'm a slow learner. I go to a meeting on Friday called slow learners. We're slow learners and faster forgetters. Some some people that The young people these days, they come in with like spiritual knowledge. Where do they get this from? I don't understand it. Anyway, I was really slow. I was trying to make the desert of the material world bloom. And it won't. You get all your ducks in a row, and then you read a report about global warming. There are no ducks big enough to sort that problem. I cannot. Sort that problem out, and that's one of the hundred. the only way, the only way then to get happiness in the material world is to block the whole thing out. But here's the strange thing: the strangest thing. My primary aim in my life is to stay in conscious contact with a power greater than myself. When I'm in between activities, I pray, I meditate, I listen, I read. I cannot wait to finish the things I'm doing so that I can go and do those things. Not because I'm good, not because I'm nice, but because I'm right, as the witch in Into the Wood says. I'm, I I've put my money on the right horse, which is the fourth dimension. That's where my identity and value and purpose lie. My identity is I'm a child of God, I'm spirit, I'm not a body. My body is my current communication device. It is not who I am. I don't, it is not my identity. It has characteristics, but it is not who I am. My value is that I'm of infinite value just because I exist. My purpose is to wake up, not fall asleep again, and help other people wake up. I want to stay in the fourth dimension. However, big book, head in the clouds with God feet on earth with my fellows because that's where my work is and the strange thing is the material world which seemed so doomed when my identity value and purpose lie in the higher realms which are the real reality if you think about the material world as the play going on on the stage the stage is in a theater the theater is in a city the city is in a country the country is on a planet, the planet is in the universe. If you think of the material world as a play on a stage somewhere in the universe and the realm of the spirit is everything outside of that, that gives you some idea about the relationship between the material world and the realm of the spirit. The realm of the spirit is not just tiny little box you keep on a shelf in your room that you occasionally put you know lift up the lid to get a little bit of oxygen. No, it's the real reality which is out there. But the amazing thing is, The more time I spend there, the material world starts to be like heaven on earth. And it's the same material world with the same stuff going on and the same crazy matrix people everywhere who believe X, Y, and Z, and whatever. But it's transformed by it. It's remarkable. Uh, And you know what? You look at the big book, the program is essentially between pages 63 and 89, 88, Uh, there's some considerations before step three, there's some practical stuff after step 11, all the step 12 stuff is practical, it's on 25 pages, it should not work, but it does, and that's why I think it's divinely inspired. Steve, thanks for asking me to speak, that's all I've got.